Welcome to It's a Nice Place to Brew with Jason and George, a show about all things beer and beer making. Gentlemen, please broadcast responsibly. I feel like that's a perfect note to start on. <laughs> you know, because this is a blues riff from B, just so just watch me for the changes and try to keep up, all right? <laughs> all right. Uh, I just hit record on you without telling you. Oh, you did. Oh, well, good. That's 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 fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if it, we'll see if we leave this in or not. <laughs> did it come through? It did. Yes, I have it now. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Getting a good start so far. Technology is working. Working just perfectly, so let's see if yeah. it keeps up. Well, I'd say good evening, but uh, as we said on the uh, two episodes ago, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. This <laughs> is a nice place to brew. I'm Jason. And I'm George. We are a home brewers podcast from the Chicagoland area and now and now Virginia as well. How you doing tonight, George? I'm doing all right. I um, uh, got myself a Vienna lager here of my own make that I'm quite happy with. And, you know, doesn't get a whole lot better than that. I hear you. I hear you. At the time of this recording is late October. And uh, this, uh, I, guess, I guess, is an ideal uh, way to start off the show because this is going to be an Oktoberfest heavy episode. This is by far my favorite time of the year. And. Right now, as late in October as we are, I'm starting to get a little bit sad because the end is kind of in sight. Um, there's so many cool things that come up in October, like the World Series, like um, leaves changing, and of course, autumn slash Oktoberfest flavored beers being plentiful around the area. And uh, this this October has been no no exception. So. Yeah, I you know I've tried actually a, a couple uh, pumpkin beers this time around that have been fairly good. Um, one that was a standout for me, and I don't know if it's one of the ones you wanted to talk about, was that one from Hardywood, their pumpkin farmhouse, which is a little bit of a riff on pumpkin beers from a saison perspective. Uh, I thought that was uh was pretty good, and it wasn't a whole ton of like gourd flavor, but you know they, they had those spices and 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 whatnot in there that were you know made it really really nice beer to drink. Actually, it, it's it's uh it's it's good that you mentioned that. Um, my uh, other brews reviewed for this episode is going to be all Oktoberfest flavored beers, and t- uh, to your point, that was not one of them. Although I do admit that that was a uh, that was definitely a beer that I enjoyed this month. So that being the case, um, before we go into our first segment, other brewers reviewed, I've got a story, Ooh. and I, I feel like I feel like this show is the perfect setting to to share this. George, you don't know this story yet, but you're gonna you'll get a kick out of this. <laughs> so this is a uh, this is a story regarding. Um, uh, uh, home brewing competitions. Obviously, we have talked to an exhausting degree about those on the show. And this story comes from good friend of the show, Kevin, who is a certified beer judge, a good friend of ours, and one-time, uh, one-time co-host of the show. So he, uh, we were at a brew club event a couple, couple weeks ago, and he told a story of an event that he was not judging but one that he had entered a beer in because in addition to being a beer judge, of course, he's a homebrew guy. Go figure. 
And um, it was not a, it was one of the non BJCP certified um, setting competitions. And each of these, if you run in, in if you run into them, it, which both you and I, George, certainly have in the past, the structure is a little bit different. You don't you don't always have kind of the four categories of uh, of judging that's um, that's usually put together when you go to a, a formal competition, and also your beers will be drank by people that who that may or may not be very well versed in judging beers or even every style of beer. So point to that story is some of these, you don't quite know what you're going to get. And this was, this was kind of one of those. So in Kevin's case, he had entered a competition for what I believe was session beers. Kevin, if you listen to this, don't kill me if I'm wrong, (laughs) but um, he got, uh, he got his beer reviewed. And at the, uh, at the end, he got his score sheets back. And I've got a I've got a copy of of one of the structures of the forms that it, that was put together, and it's got three categories: aroma, flavor, and then the last uh, the last point is overall impression. Again, it's worth saying again: a regular BJCP um, scoring sheet will look a little bit different than this, but this kind of gets us gets a slight idea. So, in Ke- in Kevin's case, the person who judged his beer was clearly not a beer judge because in the third uh in the uh in the third point of the sheet where it said overall impression this was the feedback mm. <laughs> got some back kick got oh, got some th- back kick <laughs> was uh, the overall impression of kevin's session beer now, be, being that I am not a beer judge, I cannot give you a textbook definition of what got some back kick means. Nor can I even kind of articulate what that might mean. But I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, back kick. That's a mastery of the English language in addition in addition to some solid beer judging. Okay, so you were you were Soldier on, yeah, you were talking about <laughs> we couldn't figure out what back kick was. And, you know, if I had to guess, I'd say that it was probably a hit of hops at the end if he had, like, a hoppy beer. But that's the only thing I could think of. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it was a, a little yeah. bit of a strong, a strong huh. alcohol aftertaste. I, I have no idea. I And you know what? I think the world will never know because this uh, this this anonymous beer judge has <laughs> faded off into the sunset, and uh, who knows if Mister Got Some Back Kick will appear at another uh, beer judging event again? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Time will tell. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> and with that, let's uh, let's start off with uh, other brews reviewed. Sure. Uh, I've got uh, I've got two beers. George, you've got two beers. Um, again, my selection is going to be all Oktoberfest. So, George, you want to kick it off? Yeah. So I don't have two beers as much as I have two breweries because right. in between our last episode and this episode, I took a trip to Ireland. And, you know, had the, yeah, (laughs) I had the typical, you know, beers that you would, you know, normally have your Smittics, your uh, Guinness and and other ones like that. And everybody knows what those taste like and whether or not they like them, depending on 
you know, basically whether or not they like dark beers. But I ran across a fairly thriving Irish microbrew scene that I wanted to talk about. All right. The first one I'm going <laughs> to, yeah, the first brewery I'm going to talk about is uh, in a, you know, fairly actually kind of t- touristy town called Killarney, which is, um, you know, just north of the uh, Dingle Peninsula. And it, which, by the way, is where they filmed part of Star Wars as a little bit of trivia there. And, um, you know, but it's a really nice little town in uh, in Ireland. And they have this brewery there called the Killarney Brewing Company. And while I was there, I actually did drink a good amount of them because I was kind of burnt out a little bit on the uh, on the dark beers and this was towards the end of our trip so they had a good selection of sessionable lighter beers that they uh, you know had on tap at most of the places so the two that really kind of keyed in on was their Killarney Blonde um, which as you'd expect has an SRM of four IBUs are, are kind of on the low end at 23, and it's an ABV of 4.8. So, like I said, super sessionable. And it was it it was not very hoppy. It was you know malty and had a good good character to it. Um, then there was their red, their Killarney red, um, that had an SRM of 15. Hops again were about 30, so not a huge amount of hop flavor to it an ABV at a 4.5. So this one was a little bit more roasty and caramel and toffee kind of flavors to it. And it was also super bready that um, would, you know, just it just really kind of filled your mouth with flavor when you were drinking it. So it was a, it was a really nice beer and, and, and one I would definitely drink again. Uh, the brewery was right outside of town. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to get there, but... That was, uh, you know, if I went back, I might consider trying to stop over there. Did they happen to mention if they uh, distribute outside of Ireland? You know, I didn't look for that. Uh, I wasn't sure if it was a kind of a local thing like we would see with some of our craft breweries, you know, local or regional, but I'm not sure if they do or not. Okay, that'd be interesting. Uh, I I mean I'm envious of this of this um, of this trip for many reasons, but one of them in this in this uh, this uh, other brewer other brew reviewed kind of brings it to the forefront of my mind. I have not had a craft beer experience outside the United States, and I've never thought of that until just now. So the I'm here and you know hearing this like when you think of brewery in Ireland most people's brain would go right to Guinness or Killian's or one of the major ones. It's interesting, you know, putting, you know, your, your smaller regional brewery, you know, in that, in that same place. So that, yeah, that, that really brings, it brings a lot of images to mind. Yeah, it was, it, it was unexpected for me as well. You know, I mean, obviously I went over thinking, okay, I've never had a Guinness in Ireland. I really do want to experience it, see how different it is from, you know, the Guinness that we drink. And quite frankly, it is different. I don't even know how to describe it, but it is different, somehow creamier. And, um, and you know, and then I was looking around and I was like, holy crap, there's 
craft breweries here too. And it turns out, you know, in recent memory, Ireland's really kind of taken off in the whole craft brew scene. Nice. So yeah. it's more than more than just Guinness now. Guin- I've got a special place in my heart for Guinness. I always have, always will. That was, you know, one of my first uh, first beers of choice, you know, and back in my early 20s when I discovered beer. So, you know, I, obviously my my tastes have, have changed fairly considerably since that time. But, you know, that, that beer has a, has a place. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think in any dark yeah. beer lover's, you know, brain, there's a, there's a special place for Guinness. But, yep. yeah. Very true. Good, good deal. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's my first uh, brew reviewed. Um, this is by a brewery that I won't even say that's near and dear to my heart, but it's near and dear to me. I being here at uh, a nice place to brew studios in beautiful Darien, Illinois, where it's a nice place to live. Um, it's <laughs> a nice place to live for many reasons. And here's one of them because I live about 50 yards away from a brewery. That brewery just happens to be called Skeleton Key Brewing, located in Woodridge, Illinois, which is literally right across a major street between my neighborhood and where they're at. So 50 yards away from a brewery, life is pretty good. Yeah. Um, And credit to Skeleton Key. Um, Skeleton Key just celebrated their two-year anniversary within the last month and a half. I believe it was sometime in early to mid-September. I don't remember the date offhand. But Skeleton Key has stepped up their game noticeably over the last year, and I give them a lot of credit for that. They're, uh, my most recent visit to Skeleton Key, the, uh, the selection was impressive, and the beer quality was noticeably better than I remember it. So kudos to Skeleton Key for that. So the beer that I that I have to review is called Shoot the Glass Fest Beer, made by Skeleton Key. And uh, this brings up a point about Oktoberfest that I think it's important to illustrate before we get into further segments. There's two categories of, of Oktoberfest beers. Um, and the first one is called a Fest Beer, and I'll spell that F-E-S-T-B-I-E-R. And then Marzen is the, uh, is the other version. And this shoot the glass is a fest beer um, example of an Oktoberfest. Um, the difference between the two, uh, I think the color is the most notable difference. Marzen will be deeper and more amber in color, and a fest beer will be will be lighter. According to Untapped, the uh, sty- uh, the style guide has a couple of uh, bullet points that uh, that kind of fits the profile of this particular beer. It's listed as malty, smooth sweet, dry, and spicy. I might take issue with the spicy comment, but okay. This was a solid Oktoberfest beer. It was uh it comes in at uh 5.9%, so it's right uh, right within the category. And uh yeah, just for an October uh for an October season, you know, it was just a, it was a solid selection. Um I'd put that up there on the uh, on the list of the best Oktoberfest beers that I had uh, that I had this season. So, Skeleton Key Brewing Company out of Woodridge, uh, Illinois, solid solid choice, uh, solid job on this one, and uh, you know, kudos for the uh, for the good beers that you've made for now two plus years. Nice, yeah, it's uh, glad to hear that you know they've refined it in your eyes a little bit. They were uh, there was a little bit of a. Uh, you know, falling out of love with them for a little bit with you. Um, I'm glad to hear that that's come back to, you know, be the good graces again. 
Yep. Coming on strong. Yeah. Well done, boys. <laughs> All right. Especially especially little being 50 yards from me. I mean, I, I, would, I would hate to have a hold a negative opinion of a brewery that's so close to me. I know, right? Well, it's not like you can walk to that unless you're really courageous. But um, yeah, but you oh, know, yeah, it I is can. really close. I have. You can, You've walked. You've walked to Skeleton Key across that. Did they install a traffic light that I don't know about? No, no, no. Not only can I, I do. It's first of all, it's way too close to drive. Like, I mean, what? I mean, I'd have to be the, the laziest dude ever to. It's to, not about lazy. It's about people drive. driving. 50 miles an hour on that road. Okay, I would argue that it is safer to walk across that street than to shoot over four lanes of traffic from my neighborhood <laughs> into that parking lot area. That very well may be true, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose both points can be argued, but I, I, I rest my case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Okay. Um, what you yeah. got? I do. Okay, so one more. So we were in a little town. Well, not little. I mean, it's like a pretty big town actually called Galway and I went up to the um went up to the to the bar and was looking to see what they had and this is where I actually first realized that there was you know craft beer in in Ireland and I drank of all things an IPA but little bit of a riff on it because it was an Irish pale ale, not an India pale ale, as you would expect. <laughs> so, I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> it's called the Galway Hooker. <laughs> and before, before you get too excited, <laughs> to, before you get too excited, Galway Hooker is a boat. <laughs> and, and and there's a uh I don't remember I don't remember the story behind the boat but there's a there's a boat called the Galway Hooker and uh that's what the that's what the the, the beer is named after it's an Irish pale ale so it is a pale ale it has a little bit more by way of hops um but it has a biscuity flavor and 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 they use kind of fruity hops in it so it's not super bitter and it's still got a, got a little bit of that kind of bready, malty thing going on with it. And it's 4.3% alcohol. So, it's, again, super sessionable. And it, I, I think I drank uh, quite a bit of that while I was there. <laughs> Let me, so, let's, I'm just visualizing so, this. So, um, so, bready notes, uh, fruitier hops than your, than your India IPA. Uh-huh. And low on the ABV, less than 5%. Right. Less than five percent, four point three. So it's it was definitely a uh, a very sessionable wow. beer. That sounds yeah. good. Yeah, I mean it really does. I, I mean honestly, I, I mean I, I. Oh, it was. It was India very good. Pale ale, you know, is you know your the the image that comes to you when you hear India Pale Ale is very specific, and what you just described doesn't match anything. Is is to w the way you describe an is, India Pale Ale? That's so interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, totally different. And it was, it, but and it was worth, you know, it it was definitely very, very good. Yeah, so of course, and uh, if I can cheat, I have Absolutely. to talk about on. one more. Yeah, I got to talk about one more. Yeah, and, and this one isn't Irish, actually. It's Michigan. So, uh, a buddy of mine in a brew uh, club that I go to here in Virginia, 
he went on a kind of a cross country trip where he he rented an RV and uh, his wife did most of the driving. He did most of the drinking and they went kind of across country to various breweries and things up in, uh, you know, uh, across the country. So they went out, they found their, their way out to Michigan and went to uh, a couple of them out there. And then, you know, one of them that he said he actually went to that he was disappointed in, this is going to surprise you, I think, is uh, Bell's. Whoa. Bellsbury. He was disappointed Ooh, in that one. That's a, that's a, those are dangerous words here. I know, right? Bell's Brewery is a, a legendary Midwest brewery. I know. They're, they're one of the originals. But, I mean, they go back, what, how many generations? I, I was something ridiculous. But we actually met the guy at one of the boss competitions. He was the keynote speaker. Right. He was, he was a keynote right. speaker. And, and, and he's yeah. super personable and very, very nice guy. And it was... So I was really surprised to hear that he didn't have a good time at Bell's. But one of the ones he did discover up in that kind of same area is called One Well Brewing. And they did something I didn't think was possible. They made this beer and it's called uh, Xalpa. I'm going to I'm going to spell it. It's X-A-L-A-P-A. So how do you how do you think that would be pronounced? Exactly. I don't, I have no idea. Um, but Shalapa, <laughs> you guess as good as mine. As yeah, good as I'm gonna I don't do. know. It is a blonde yeah. ale at five point two percent, and it has no spice jalapenos in it. Now, Jason and I have had a bunch of beers with. Uh, various forms of peppers in it. Jalapenos, habaneros, uh, ghost peppers, I think. And we, at least I, you know, I think, I think you're with me on this. We were turned off by almost all of them because of just the capsaicin hit just doesn't belong in beer. And you just get this like spicy stuff that just completely Mm -hmm. overrides the flavor of the beer. That, that Agreed. did not exist in this beer at all. It was just jalapeno flavor with no jalapeno spice. It was amazing. I have no idea how they did it. So what was the effect that it created? You just got that kind of vegetable jalapeno. And th- so there was a little bit of heat to it, but not the capsaicin sting that you usually get with a pepper beer. So you just got the, you just got like the essence of jalapeno if I, if i can be somewhat metaphysical about it but the essence of jalapeno with <laughs> without any of the drawbacks wow and yeah. it's the best way i could think to describe it and, and i don't know i mean the dude came back with i'm i'm going to be hunting this beer down i think like, you I, I i must be able to put like a taste put a taste of what what's being described here this is this is so, so interesting and so unique yeah so i'm going i'm actually going to send it to you right now oh, actually you're in my okay so i just sent it to you in untapped um holy oh, holy crap awesome. i did something in untapped but <laughs> 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 I wasn't gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but yeah, no, it's not going to be a beer for everybody because uh, it still has that, like I said, the essence of jalapeno. So you get that little bit like vegetable characteristics that, you know, depending on how you feel about that, you know, does or doesn't belong in beer at all. But if you've been turned off by pepper beers because just that in the back of your throat spiciness that doesn't belong in a beer, that doesn't that's not in there at all. Yeah. Wow. That is a glowing review. And unfortunately, Untapped tells me that it's nowhere within 50 oh, miles. That's away. a bummer. <laughs> so, but I'm wondering if there's something I can do. Yeah. No, that's that, that that's an excellent review. No, thank you. For yeah, no problem. Up. So, uh, yeah. now your last one. All right. I got... I got I got one more. Uh, going Oktoberfest again. Um, this is uh, going back in time for uh, for this show too. Um, not only have uh, we talked about this brewery, we've done a show from this brewery, talking about our good old friends over at Pollyanna. Oh, um, now Pollyanna. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Going back. So Pollyanna for the last several years. I don't know if they've done this since they since they opened a couple years ago, but I know for the last several years. They have thrown a special Oktoberfest event outside their brewery, and they did that again this year. And I was uh, I was able to attend, and it is a uh, for the most part a just a classic um, German style Oktoberfest event. Um, German style food, people dressed up in lederhosen and all that all that good stuff, and of course, good Oktoberfest beer. And um, Pollyanna not only has their own Oktoberfest beer, which is called Fruhoff, this is a widely <laughs> acclaimed beer. And before I go under my review of it, I'll say it's acclaimed for good reason. So in in Untapped, the first thing that it uh, that it outlines is this beer won a uh, bronze medal at the Great American Beer Festival in 2016 for German style Marzen beers. So that's that's a huge accolade, and hats off to our friends at Pollyanna Brewing Company for that. So here's the rest of the details. They, they, they go into pretty good detail. Built in 1871, the current La Dolce Vida restaurant in Lamont was once home to a Charles uh, Fruhoff store. Charles Fruhoff, a German-born immigrant, built his storefront out of Lamont limestone, and his general store was a Lamont staple throughout the late 1980s. We brewed this Oktoberfest as homage to him and the beautiful building that still stands to this day. Clean, malty, and just dry enough, this Marzen-style lager is to be consumed in your finest lederhosen while eating giant pretzels in an endless beer garden. Awesome. All right. Slight correction to the uh, detail I just gave about the Fruhoff. Um, let me clarify one of the time uh, one of the timelines uh, given. Um, Charles Fruhoff, a German-born immigrant, built his storefront out of Lamont Limestone, and his general store was a Lamont staple throughout the late 1800s. Previous said the said the 1980s. That was wrong. Okay. Oh, okay. Correction yeah, that's down. big difference. Okay. Okay. Um, descriptors for this beer: malty, smooth, sweet, clean, and light. It really was just everything that you would look for in an, in an Oktoberfest beer. It was. Uh, ABV comes in at 5.4%. It's not too soft, but not not so heavy that you couldn't have have several of them, you know, th- you know, in a given Oktoberfest setting as yeah. as it was that day. No, th- this is this beer is acclaimed for for good reason. It's it's just a solid solid Marzen Oktoberfest. So, hats off to you guys, Pollyanna. Well well-deserved award and uh great days ahead. 
Nice. Yeah. It's worth, it's worth saying, too, that, I mean, Pollyanna has really uh, solidified themselves as one of the gold standard breweries here in the Chicagoland area, so much that they now have a second location. Really? I'm not Where's sure if up? Roselle. Roselle? Where the hell is that? I don't remember what the timeline around that. If it was before or after you'd uh, headed off to Virginia. But yeah, they've got a they've got a second one up in Roselle now. Remind me where Roselle so, is. Good, do, good news all around for, for Pollyanna. Yeah, Jason, remind me where Roselle is. Roselle is, um, is just south of Schaumburg. It's at the far uh, northern end of DuPage County. Okay. All right. That's going right. to do it for uh, Other Brewers Reviewed. Um. So when we come back, uh, we're going into segment number two, Recipe Wizard. We're going to talk all about Marzens. So stay with us. All right. And we're back. Welcome back to A Nice Place to Brew. This is the Oktoberfest episode we're talking all about marzens today other brews reviewed was oktoberfest heavy our recipe wizard is gonna is gonna follow suit it is late october again i'm sad about that it is but you know it comes around just about once a year so uh not you often know, enough can we, always... re- re- can we re- reconfigure the calendar just so you know october shows up you know two or three times through <laughs> <laughs> did you get your Not that i can control that or anything well but you also need march to show up a couple times too because you know marzen although we'll get into that you know yes yeah yes. so it, you know, maybe it's just like march october march october march october you know just just take care of it that way true true <laughs> That is the, uh, th- that's the perfect point to start on. So um, we're going to talk uh, all about the Marzen style in this segment. Um, for those of you who follow the BJCP guidelines, um, you're looking at category 6A. And that's a, th- that's a good footnote to, uh, to notate is um, Marzen, the word Marzen translates in German to March. The background uh, of that is... Um, Throughout history, um, the Marzen beers war- began their brewing in March, and in the in the ages prior to refrigeration, what would happen is after brewing was was completed, um, uh, those beers would be moved into caves, and they would you know they would be lagering out for a period of about six months until Oktoberfest was ready, and that's when they would come out and they would be ready to drink at that point. So the Marzen name carries on, you know, just, you know, look, uh, looking back to those, uh, uh, going back to that, that style and that, uh, in those brewing processes. You know, refrigeration being a thing, I think a lot of places still make their Marzens in that time frame just to give it enough time to age. You know, they don't stick it in a cave anymore per se, but they still make it at that time to give it enough time to age out so it can, uh, you know, have that full flavor that you expect in a Marzen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's, um, let's talk about the, uh, let's, let's go through some of the, uh, some of the details. Um, I've got a couple of bullet points here. Um, first is overall impression. So an elegant, a Marzen beer is classified as an elegant, malty German amber lager with a clean, rich, toasty, and bready malt flavor, restrained bitterness, and a dry finish that encur- that encourages another drink. The overall malt impression is soft, 
elegant, and complex with a rich aftertaste that is never cloying or heavy. It's so important. Yeah. It's an easy way yeah. to mess up a Marzen is having that oh, aftertaste be, too, you know, stick around too long. Right. The other thing is uh, light on the bitterness. Oh, so yeah. your hot profile is going to be mild. So less less is more in this style. Okay. All right. So looking at appearance, we're looking at kind of an amber orange to a deep reddish kind of copper color. So you think of kind of a slightly deeper color than you would have with like an Irish red. Typically, um, it's... It, it, it usually has uh, a good amount of clarity and off-white foam that's on there. So, you, you know, it gets some of the uh, influences from those malts and, and in, the, in the foam, in the head. And it, you know, won't have that crisp, clean white color that you'll find in like your pale ales or your blondes. But it'll be kind of a little bit of an off-white color. Right. D- tell me if this matches the details you're, uh, that you have. Going to the vital statistics, the SRM range for Marzen is 8 to 17. Uh, yeah, 8 to 17, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and you know, just kind of going along with those vital statistics and, and what you were talking about with the hops, they remain present but low at about 18 to 24. So right. they're there, but they're really low. Exactly, exactly. So let's go through the rest of the... Um, uh, vital statistics. The ABV range um, for Marzen is 5.8 to 6.3. And we'll go through original gravity and final gravity ranges as well. Um, original gravity range is 1054 to 1060. And that should ferment down to a final gravity between 1.010 and 1.014. So if that tells us anything... That tells us that this is this beer is not going to have any sweetness to it, you know, pretty much at all. You know, the, any multi character is just going to override any residual sweetness in there, and that speaks to that whole uh, overall impression where it's dry and you know, quote encourages another drink. You know, but it's <laughs> it's 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 a little bit on the drier side uh, for yep. for multi yep. beers. Right. Key, it, the key's right in the overall impression. A dry finish, restrained bitterness, and a clean, rich, toasty, and bready malt flavor. Right. All that breadiness so, is, is so important. And, and, and it sounds so right, weird to right. hear when you think, oh, I'm going to describe this beer as bready. But, <laughs> you know... <laughs> When when you drink a, a good Marzen, like I'm sure, you know, given how much you you went on about it, I'm sure that Pollyanna one, which also I'm sure because I'm sure it is, but you know the uh, you know that that's what you taste. You feel like you're drinking liquid bread, and it's 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 a good thing, you know. So absolutely, yeah. So with the uh, so we got the vital statistics. Let's talk about um, let's let's talk about the individual components. Let's uh, and we'll talk about the um, uh, grain profiles, hot profiles, and also uh, some yeast to use. So let's uh, let's start off with malts, shall we? Okay. All right. So our good friends at Beersmith uh, published an article in 2009 that has some really good details um, in regards to all these areas. So. Marzen is generally made up of a combination of Munich, two-row, pale malt, Pilsner, and Vienna malts. 
Generally, the multi-Munich malts make up as much as half of the grain bill, which either uh, Pilsner or uh, Pale Malt making the balance of the grain bill. There's a point about extract recipes, but I think most of us are, are past that. So, uh, Vienna may be added as a substitute for 10 to 15% of the Munich malt to add a slightly more toasted flavor. A small number of homebrew recipes also add 5 to 10% crystal or 5% carapils malt to add body and head retention. Okay. I've got a point that I want to raise about the carapils uh, malt at the end of this, but um, as far as the base malts or the specialty malts, do you have any uh, points you want to add? No, I mean, just the Munich malt is is an important one to that. Uh, I haven't seen a whole lot with a, a ton of Vienna, but I could see how that could, you know, help to change the flavor and make it a little bit more complex. And the carapils, or I would also add carabelge in there. It's a not as widely used one, but it's one I've had a good amount of success with, with uh, head retention and just maintaining that um, that body in the beer um so that uh, you know it's not going to add a whole lot by way of like taste character but mouthfeel and appearance it's going to add a ton it's probably worth uh worth mentioning too when i brewed my oktoberfest for this year um which i had done for the first time it was also my first time using a malt called caramunic and oh, george yeah. I, I believe your vienna lager recipe had that as well right I had a little bit of Caramunic, yeah. It was obviously yeah. mostly Vienna, but I had a little bit of Caramunic, yeah. Now, not knowing all the details of, of Caramunic, will that do what exactly the Carapils malt it, uh, does as part of this description where it adds body and head retention? It will. Uh, it's a little different um, than the Carapils, and, but yeah, it will add some of those characters to it. Uh, it'll also add more maltiness than, say, a Carapils will. So if you're adding that along with Munich and along with Vin Vienna, you have to be careful that you don't overdo it a little bit. But, the, but it will add uh, some body and head retention to it, yes. Great, great. Um, it's worth talking about the bready notes as well. Mm. Sorry, so, every time I hear that, it's just so tasty in beer. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> we've uh, we've used biscuit malt on a couple of recipes before. Yes. And I think the effect is great. You know, I mean, maybe a little bit unorthodox, but we've made a, I know we've made a porter in the past that it, it was a great contributor. So I, I, I would say don't shy away from that. So we've talked about Munich, two-row, uh, two-row pale malt, Pilsner, and Vienna malts. Is it the Vienna malts that's going to add a little bit of bready notes um, with this? Uh, I'd say probably bready and nutty, a little bit of a nutty character to it as well. From the Vienna specifically? Yes, from the Vienna specifically. Good deal. All right. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to hops, shall we? We shall. Hops for Marzen Oktoberfest beers is typically of the noble German or Bohemian variety, and a bitterness ratio is generally about 0.5 to 0.6. Pop, uh, popular hop selection includes Saz, Tettnanger, and Hallertau, though occasionally American hops are used by home brewers. Generally, these are added only for bittering, and aroma or dry hops are rarely used. You got off easy because I was going to quiz you on what your German noble hops were, but they, you listed them out. So. 
<laughs> I would have failed that test, but don't judge me. <laughs> so I went a little bit off script uh, when uh, when putting my recipe together. Um, I did follow it for the bittering hops. So for okay. my five gallon recipe, uh, my bittering hop was Hallertau. It didn't. It didn't need much. I mean, no. you know, my my hop addition was half an ounce um, with uh, thirty five minutes to go. You know, and that's that's not much. No, no, it's not. But I mean, again, it's not meant to be a very hoppy beer. I mean, it's just meant right. to be present. So it's not surprising to me that you didn't have to add a lot to it. Right. Now, the comment that they made about the uh, aroma hops, that's where I went a little bit off script because I, uh, I did do a bittering hop. I, I used half an ounce of Herzbrucker uh, with 10 minutes to go. Okay. But doing the math on that, you know, that's a contributor of a whopping two IBUs to the, to the recipe. Yeah. And being I, that it was a small addition as it was, you know, you're not, uh, you're not going too far. You're not going too far off the rails with that. Right. And flavor hops are not really a, you know, they don't usually contribute a whole ton in IBUs. It's a matter of contributing that flavor. So using a bittering hop that probably had a low alpha as your, um, as your, as your flavor hop in this, it, you know, I'm sure it didn't contribute much to the point where if you did this one again, Jason, you may want to consider just scrapping that, just not doing that flavor hop. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe just add your, your Hallertau just a little bit earlier to make up the IBU. Um, but you just scrap the flavor hop entirely in this because it's, I think it's going to get overwhelmed by the multi characteristics. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So you didn't venture too far off script, but you're not gaining really, really much by that 10 minute addition. No, you've, that's a very good point. And yeah, if I did this again, that's probably exactly what I would do. Um, any other points on that before we move on to yeast? Uh, no, yeast is kind of where things get interesting with this one because I don't think we've talked about a a style like this in in this. Uh, we have not. You're yeah. correct. So, all right, have at it. So let's move on. Let's move on to yeast. All right. So, um, it's worth mentioning to get started that Marzen is of course a is of course a lager. So. Your process for fermentation is going to follow all the all the lagering techniques, which involves refrigeration, temperature control, and a long fermentation at low temperatures. So, mm-hmm. when you when you begin this um, when you begin this process, be prepared. So, um, all right, to get started, uh, Bavarian lager yeast or Marzen October. Fest yeast is the prime choice for Marzen with Bohemian Pilsner yeast providing a reasonable backup. Ferment at around 50 degrees Fahrenheit and lager and after fermentation is complete, which plan about two-ish weeks, um, plan to lager near freezing temperatures for at least five weeks. So let's build on let's let's build on here and let's go through kind of the, the lagering process just to just to notate for uh, for everybody. Um, a couple words of advice. Number one, use a starter. Uh, I am a big proponent of, mm-hmm. of using a starter for most, if not all of, uh, all brewing projects. I used, I used a, a starter for this, uh, for this recipe and it makes a huge difference. No doubt. Your, your fermentation is going to start off quicker. It's going to be healthier. 
just do it. <laughs> it's not it's not that difficult. <laughs> okay. From there, um, as the article said, fermented around uh, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. It'll reach its final gravity plan for it to be about two weeks. Don't be too surprised if it's going to go to about three, especially if you're not doing a starter that will lengthen your, your fermentation uh, timeline. And after that's complete, what's the next step? Uh, well, you know, the, the diacetyl rest most likely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, bring okay. the temperature up a little bit. Yeah, sorry, exactly. I didn't realize you exactly. were yes. <laughs> No, <laughs> that's okay. It was, that was a crappy segue on my part, so <laughs> that's on me. Okay, so um, diacetyl rest, or our good our little friend diacetyl that we have to deal with for every, every lager. So to get rid of diacetyl, here's what you got to do. Um, your, ferment, uh, your temperature of 50 degrees needs to raise uh, to between the range of 63 and 68 degrees for a period of, I think, about four to seven days, I think, is, I think will be enough to get it done. And then that's when the, the lagering starts. So the article mentioned that lager near freezing temperatures, so in, which is 33 to 37 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. So look at it like this. You're starting off from 68 degrees, which you reach during your diacetyl rest, and then you've got you to bring the temperature down to that level. As a best practice, do this gradually. Um, not that you can't crash the, uh, the temperature down, but it's going to be a healthier drop if you drop it at a rate of 5 degrees per day. Depending on, you know, George, I know you've done. Yeah, I was gonna say, depending on how long you want to lager for and how much time you have, you can do that as slow as about a degree a day. Um, if you have that, so what would what would be the benefit to doing doing that to to doing to slowing the rate to one degree per day? It's gonna take longer, but it could result in a better clarity in your beer. Um, and really, that's what it's what it's going to be about. But it's definitely going to take much longer because you're going to have to get down to that temperature, and then you're going to have to hold it at that temperature for for a good amount of time. Uh, I think you were exactly. alluding to. I did a quick logger method um, recently, where I just crashed it down to the near freezing temperatures because I I was under a bit of a timetable. I you know it crashed out and cleared up very well. And I don't, and I don't um, think that I'll have the longevity of the beer as you would for a traditional lagering method. But um, if you if you don't plan on having your you know beer be around for months and months, then you can do a quick lager method on this. So back to the back to the timeline about uh, um, how long to lager for. To your point, those the, there are quick lagering um, methods out there which can allow you to, you know, kind of complete the beer faster. But to your point, the beer is not going to quite be around as long as as long as if you did it uh, with a slower method. Uh-huh. The articles that I read um, recommended a time frame of about five to six weeks um, to lager from the end of the diacetyl rest. Is that consistent with uh, with what you know? Yeah, for a traditional logging lagering method, about a month to a month and a half is not unusual. So. Right, right. And by that time, you're you know the the beer is has had a lot of time at those colder temperatures. You know, all the everything in the beer, you know, should be you know crashed out, and all the um, 
all the yeast and and all the other proteins, you know, should have should have time to drop to the bottom, and you should be left with a with you know with a good clear beer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I uh, I was a little off. I think mine. I I think my lagering ended at four weeks. I was a little bit outside the f- the five to uh, five to six week range, and it was for the same reason that you described. I uh, was an, a, under a bit of a time crunch. I had to submit for a competition, so. You know, just had to be done. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just not going to last quite as long or be, you know, if you had, if you had the full five weeks, you know, you get hit, you hit a point, a little bit of diminishing returns with the lagering process, especially for a traditional lagering process. Some people, that's a good point. Some people are hard line that, you know, you, you know, that last week is super important, but you know, in all honesty, you know, it's it, as long as you can, I mean, we're, we're not, none of us are, you know, saving lives with our beer. So if we don't know that, <laughs> we don't know that. <laughs> That's true. We don't this know. This is that. important stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, so the long is the longer you can give it, the better. But you know, if if you can only do four weeks, that's still a really long time uh, to lager and make sure that all of that suspended stuff has had a chance to filter out. Because the biggest thing with a lager in a lot of cases is you want that you want to be able to see through that beer, like as as opposed to a ale where a lot of times it's it has that kind of unfiltered look a lager you should be able to see through and still read an eye chart with that beer that's a great that's a great note aim to be able to see through the glass and and read what what was it how did you say that still read an eye chart (laughs) read an eye chart (laughs) that was fantastic (laughs) if you take nothing else away from that segment that's the one (laughs) Aim to create a beer that you can see through to the point that you can read an eye chart. That's fantastic. I do what I can. So- <laughs> yeah, that's you know that's a great yardstick for lagering just in general. That goes beyond the Marzens we're talking about here. Oh yeah, my my Vienna. Um, <laughs> even though I did a quick lager method, like I said, it cleared up really well. Uh, and you know, um, I'm able to see straight through that once it, you know, once the pour's done and it, it just, the clarity on that was everything I hoped it would be. So, you know, That's I, awesome. I've seen people go as far and I don't know that I'd recommend this, but I've seen people go as far if they're, especially if they're doing a quick lager method is to put some eyes in glass in the secondary carboy when they, um, when they rack over and rack on top of it. Um, right. You know, cause isinglass, you know, the stuff made from fish bladders and whatnot is, is a clarifying agent and is something that will help to precipitate suspended proteins and things out of the beer and, and down to the, down to the bottom. So it's something that you can do. Uh, if you're doing your lagering correctly, you shouldn't necessarily have to um but if you're yeah. if you're under a little bit of a time crunch it might be something to think about and it's flavor neutral as well oh so yeah perfectly safe to use yeah 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 all the fishing we've, d- we've done that before what have we done that we've uh, we've used isinglass where we forgot to use whirlflock tablets because we're idiots exactly but you exactly, know yeah. yeah but i don't think we've ever used it in conjunction with lagering i i believe you're correct but it, you know the same logic applies yeah yeah I've got one other note I wanted to make mention, and it's uh, related to yeast choice. Um, my, and I, 
I just I just feel like putting it out there. My lager yeast of choice is Safe Lager W3470. I've used that for two different recipes in two different styles. Um, I used it for this most recent uh, Marzen recipe that I that I put together, and it's it's such a versatile yeast um, in terms of not only style but also temperature range. It's it's a it's a yeast that just if you if you operate within the um, uh, the ranges of the yeast, it's it's really going to yield a, a really really healthy beer. And in the recommendations, um, style wise, best for basically all European lagers. So if you're if you're thinking about doing a lager, take a look at this W thirty four seventy. It's I mean it's worked worked wonders for me in the past. Yeah. So Jason. Um, has for for those of you who don't know, he has joined the dry yeast dark side and has started to use oh. that. And, and start, you know, and I and I I'm actually very uh, intrigued to see what you do with it in the future because with dry yeast, you know, you get a, some more generic um, categories like lager yeast, whereas with uh, with um, wet yeast you tend to get more like you know bavarian lager or english lager or what have you you know that they're slightly more specific but with the with the dry yeast there's methods you can do to that in how you make the starter uh what you use as your you know your starter base and and how you use that yeast being like what temperature you use that that you can kind of tailor it to different styles that you want to do you have to be a little bit more specific in what you do, but you know, I think that it'd be something interesting for you to explore and see how you can kind of tailor those dry yeasts to achieve what you want. That's a that's a great point. Well, here's part of the logic for why I have gone over to the dark the the dry yeast dark <laughs> side as you as you just described. When you buy your yeast, if you're just bringing it home and dumping it into a starter, which is what I'm doing, why not? Well, it, 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 for bec- you know, for me, it comes down to a little bit of um, laziness is the wrong word, but it's it's, it's <laughs> not wanting to to overthink my fermentation and do those kinds of uh, temperature strategies that I'm talking about to tailor a generic lager yeast into a Bavarian lager yeast. Whereas I can get those strains that have been tailored to be a Bavarian lager yeast and, and provide those Bavarian notes. That's, to a the very, beer. that's a fair point. So, I mean, yeah. that that's, that's why for me, but I totally get what you're saying. You know, you're, you're basically turning a dry yeast into a wet yeast with the starter. So, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That is no, that's a fair point. And uh, listen, I, I'm not going as far as to waving the dry yeast flag. Um I'll still do the same thing with with wet yeast. Um like most recently I made an imperial stout and I I did use a wet yeast, but I did the same thing. I just uh I took it home and and dumped it into a starter. I think the yeast I used was the uh London ale yeast uh from Y yeast. Mm-hmm. I think was the one. Just yeah. remembering off off the top of my head. So in, in your your point is well taken that you have more of a wide variety to choose from in terms of wet yeast because those yeast will be um, configured to a specific style. You're not going to find those nearly as much as is dry yeast. So your your point is well taken. Both schools of thought are totally legitimate. Oh yeah, absolutely. And which is why I'm not you know I'm you know I I, I, I for me I think dry yeast is 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 in in a somewhat counterintuitive way 
is more complex to work with if assuming that you want to tailor it to those characteristics than than a wet yeast is just because of yeah so all right we have we've covered this in great depth this is great Mm -hmm. good deal marzen 6a is the bjcp category um read up on it if you uh you know if you have one that you made this year and uh have any comments hey look us up on so look us up on social media um at uh, on facebook at a nice place to brew and instagram at nice place to brew um yeah we'd be happy to uh, and feel free to uh, send to us notes. feel free to send us your bottles of mars end so we can try it and we'll uh we'll, we'll give you feedback yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right all right so that's going to do it for this uh for this segment next uh when we come back um we've got tips from the semi pros we're going to talk about building an equipment profile in beersmith and i've also got a trivia question that we're going to start off with so give us one second we'll be right back worth pointing out too i am currently drinking the raspberry mocha blaster from our good friends over at uh orange coffee roasters oh nice this is so yeah good. oh man this is such a great <laughs> coffee blend yeah I had, these guys work magic i had some of that dark beer that we uh got at the the orange county brew fest uh in chili cook off uh <laughs> that uh that was pretty good. Yeah, which was the brewery? What, what was the brewery that had the dark uh, dark beer? Oh, there was three. There was God, I Lightwell. Remember, I remember the tent. Are you talking about the Lightwell it, one? Yeah, that's what I'm drawing a blank on. It was it was one of the tents to the right of where you walked in. Oh, to the right. Okay, so no, not them. Um, I don't remember. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so and we're back, right? We're back. Yeah. Welcome back to A Nice Place to Brew. I'm Jason. And I'm George. I've got a trivia question. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a trivia question that revolves around our founding fathers. So, All right. a little, Amer- little American history here on uh, this episode's trivia question. I might know this one. All right. Okay. All right. Well, it made news... Um, that not our current president, but our most previous president, Mr. Barack Obama, made his own beer during his pre- uh, presidency. Not just any beer, but under President Obama's administration, um, Homebrew made a remarkable comeback to the White House. Um, the article says that Obama had claimed to be the first president since George Washington to brew his own beer. That point is not correct, and we will come back to that. <laughs> but throughout uh, President Obama's presidency, um, he made a couple different styles. His first uh, his first brew project was uh, was called White House Honey Ale, and that was followed by White House Honey Blonde Ale, White House Honey Porter, and then White House Honey Brown. I don't recall from uh, looking at a couple of articles. I suspect that these were extract recipes, but I could be wrong. They had but both. how cool is that? You it's know, very pre- cool. President Obama is making uh, is making his own beer. Yeah, it, it, they shared them on the White House website for a while too. 
Um, if you look up Ale to the Chief, uh, you can find it. But they're, they they have both extract and all grain recipes on there. Is it, do you know if it's uh, offhand if it says whether or not the versions that were made in the White House were extract or all grain? It didn't say. It just had the recipes. So, Got it. Okay. Yeah, I'm not okay. sure. Yeah. So this month's trivia question is this. Um, and back to back to the earlier comment, uh, President Obama is not the first president since George Washington to uh, to make his own beer. So the trivia question is this. All of the below U.S. presidents brewed their own beer except who? Is it A, George Washington, B, Thomas Jefferson, C, James Madison, or D, Andrew Jackson? All right. So George Washington, we know, brewed his own beer. Um, Let's see. Andrew Jackson was just crazy enough to do it. It's just crazy. <laughs> so that leaves Jefferson and Madison. Okay. I'm going to say Madison did not. Madison did not. Okay. The answer is D, Andrew Jackson. Oh, all right. Now, your, your point is totally legitimate that Andrew <laughs> Jackson was absolutely crazy, um, but not a beer maker. So here's some here's some details. Um, uh, so that leaves George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, all of which brewed beer. So uh, talk about George Washington. After serving his first term as the Ameri- as American president, George Washington retired to his house on Mount Vernon and started brewing beer for himself. The most famous recipe for small beer is transcribed in the Journal of George Washington while he was serving in the Virginia militia which today is on display at the New York Public Library. Next one is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson invested his resources into learning the art of brewing. Five years later, he opened a personal brew house. Hmm. Third, James Madison. Before becoming president, James Madison was better known as the father of the U.S. Constitution. James Madison pitched the very first bill to tax alcoholic beverages. The new tax was levied on porter, rum, beer, ale, and other spirits. The fourth president of the USA, James Madison, was probably the biggest advocate for homebrewing. He wanted to appoint a secretary of beer to the presidential cabinet. How awesome would that be? No, I'm running on that campaign. I think that would work this time, 2020. I I think I'm old enough now. Yeah, so 2020, I'm running on the (laughs) secretary of beer ticket, you know. I will. I, I, I will I'm go vote, in. I'm voting for you, man. I'll go I'm in. in. I'm in. <laughs> I, you know, I will create the cabinet position, and I'll immediately resign. It's fine. You know, you can have somebody that's more. Like, I'll have a vice president with me that knows what they're doing, as 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 a president should. I'll go in, do that one thing, and then resign. It's fine. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It starts now. <laughs> Here's one final note before we close out. Um, one of the, one of the, um, presidents names on the, named on this list was not John Adams, the second U S president, but there's an interesting fact about, uh, John Adams. That's, that's worth, uh, that's worth mentioning. Um, John Adams, second cousin was no, uh, was no other than Mr. Samuel Adams mm-hmm. of which of course the famous Boston brewery is, is named, named after. It's a little inter- interesting U S history there. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I guess uh, I guess he was 
Maybe if he had brewed his own beer, he would have been less crazy and less prone to random duels on the White House lawn. So, you know, maybe that would have helped. Yeah. (laughs) I I admit, I don't really know the the dueling on the front lawn stories. Oh, dude, Andrew Jackson was nuts. Just look up some of the the history of him and and it's it's a... you know, knowing that he was the commander in chief of the United States makes it a little scary. But now, years later, it's a laugh riot how nuts that dude was. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to um, tip uh, tips from the semi pros, shall we? Yes. All right. All right. So we want to talk about. We're talking about. We're talking about building an equipment profile. Yeah. So let me uh, let me set this up a little bit. Um, we've talked to a great degree about Beersmith. Both George and I agree that this tool is invaluable for uh, brewers of uh, whether you're beginning or advanced. This this really is a fantastic tool, and it really should be a go to tool for anybody who's uh, who's who's making beer. Um, just the, um, the the volume of ingredients and uh, and numbers that it that it um, that it feeds to you, I, to me it's almost unimaginable making beer without without Beersmith. But here's why we're bringing this up: in order to use Beersmith correctly, Beersmith needs to understand the equipment that you're working with, and building an equipment profile makes the difference of whether or not this becomes a tool that you can readily use and one that's just going to give you a lot of puzzling information that you're going to kind of struggle to get through a brew day with. So um, that being the case, uh, George has has done this a number of times, setting up, a, uh, setting up different equipment profiles and his beer quality is, is reflective of, of the ability to, to make those profiles appropriately. Oh stop! Oh yes, no, uh, no, don't don't be so humble, sir. You no, you, your 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 quality, your your quality is is not to be discounted. <laughs> well, and one thing I'll say is that we're going to focus on Beersmith because it is our uh, you know tool du jour, as it were. Um, but there are other ones out there, and no matter what tool you're using. Uh, if it has any complexity to it, you're going to want to build an equipment profile and tell it various things that we'll talk about in the in this um, uh, in this segment that will be helpful for for you in dialing in your equipment profile. Again, you know, using Beersmith or not. So, so yeah, so using using a, a Beersmith equipment profile. So when you open the program. And you start a new recipe; it will populate some default equipment. Uh, it you know it, po- it populates some default values in general, but it will populate among them default equipment. And you know, just generally using a pot and kettle, and you know it'll be fairly close to what you're what you're typically doing, and and your numbers shouldn't be too terrible off, but. There is some things you can do in order to make sure that you're dialed in a little closer and you can get more accurate with your numbers. So when you go to the profiles and equipment and you're clicked on that and you hit add equipment and open it up, it's going to come up with a screen of a 
bunch of different values that you can put in. So I'm just going to kind of go down them kind of top to bottom a little bit and explain the different sections that you can adjust and, you know, make note of. All right. Uh, so, I mean, the first section is the name. You obviously want to give it a recognizable name that you can do. Uh, and then the next section is type. And this is important because you can do extract, partial mash, all grain, cider, mead, and wine. And as you make those changes, different things will come up. Like if you set it to mead, you lose a ton of the different um, settings that you would have in there because you don't do things like boiling and, and, and such like that with mead. Uh, same with cider and uh and and wine uh because those profiles are are completely different from your typical beer setups uh and you know if you're if you're making those things and you're using beer smith in in order to plan out those recipes and have that be in there i highly recommend that you make those profiles because it will help you with making sure that you know things are showing up correctly but let's focus on the beer styles, be it extract, partial mash, or all grain. Um, so the first thing you'll notice is there's a brew house efficiency. Brew house efficiency is how efficient, how effective you are typically at pulling out those um, those proteins, those sugars, and just in, in how efficient your mashes are typically. This is you kind of learn over time and sometimes you have to tune it because you get better or worse at what you're doing. But this is worth changing this for almost every recipe that you make, because every brew day is going to have, you know, have its own unique challenges. How warm or how cold is it going to be? You know, what, uh, you know, did your water sit a little bit longer, you know, in the, when you did the, uh, uh, strike temperature heating, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of things. And this, this number is rarely the same brew day by brew day. That's true. And, and the tricky part is here with this, you kind of have to guesstimate what your efficiency is going to be before you start. So, you know, a few things to keep in mind is that higher gravity beers tend to have lower efficiency because it's harder to get those those higher gravity numbers. And like you, like you said, if it's outside of your typical brew day um, situations, like it's, it's a lot colder than it usually is or a lot warmer than it usually is or, you know, what have you, then it will affect your efficiency. And so you want to kind of take that into account. But, you know, in general, its default is 72%. Um, and I find typically for... Most brewers that have been at it for a little while between um, 65 and 75 is typically that range where you want to have your brew house efficiency, depending on what you're doing. Okay, so then we go over to the right for into fermenter and bottling volume. It's kind of jumps around a little bit, but this is um, where kind of the rubber meets the road volume wise. So batch volume is how big do you want the beer to be how what volume do you want your end um batch to be in other words if you've got a five gallon keg and you want to put five gallons in it you put five gallons here this this is uh this is the the end volume the fermenter loss is how much you plan on losing um moving it from 
the uh, boil kettle just, to the fermenter. Just trub at, at the bottom. Correct. Basically. Right. Boil kettle to the fermenter and fermenter to a secondary, and then and then subsequently secondary into bottles or keg or whatever you want to do. How much you plan on losing because of that. And this is going to depend again completely on your equipment. Some for some, uh, and and how well you're ha- able to handle trube and, and and such like that. So some I find with my conical fermenter, I tend to lose about point um, two gallon in in total loss with uh, with uh, from you know getting the trube and 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 such out of it. Okay, cool. Um, and then boil volume without starter basically is a calculation that it runs for other parts of the uh of the of the calculator so coming down to the mash lauder ton settings you'll have the mash ton volume this is how big your mash ton is so in the case of my mash ton i have a 10 gallon uh mash ton so uh, it, which is an, a modified igloo cooler so i would want to put 10 gallons in here and then mash many, ton many many all grain homebrewers are using that same that same igloo cooler as uh-huh. as a mash ton. So yeah, I think I think it pre-populates to ten gallons on here for good reason. Th- those are right. those are universal sizes. If you want to go up from from a ten gallon mash ton, you're most likely going to be custom making some kind of mash ton on your own. Right, or using a stainless steel kettle or something like that with a false bottom yeah, on it, you know, yeah. something like that. So, yeah. and, and then you know, it comes into the mash ton weight. So then, this is where you take your mash ton, you actually put it on a scale, and you get a weight. And and it's important. The weight of it is important because it calculates into the specific heat um, measurement. And, you know, it takes specific heat. You know, and then calculates in mash ton, and this is how much heat basically your mash ton will absorb as part of the uh, mashing process. So you're going to lose heat just basically because of your mash ton, and so this helps you to calculate that. Now the mash ton specific heat is there's a way to figure it out, but it's high math and complicated and totally unnecessary. So what they have here is various specific ton heat um, ratings you can use depending on the material your mash ton is made out of. Um, if it's stainless steel, plastic, aluminum, copper, or Pyrex, you're going to have different uh, mash ton heat, specific heat um, settings. Now, again, igloo cooler is made out of plastic, so that's going to be 0.3 in the in the setting. And and that gets factored in, and that's that's all you really need to know about that. There's a calculation behind it, but you know, again, super complicated and totally unnecessary for us to know. So, <laughs> when you take a uh, when you take a, a look over to the right at the boiler section, this is where it starts figuring out and helps you understand how much water you're going to need. So, the boil volume, in order to have, in this case, a batch volume of five gallons with zero fermenter loss, you're going to need 5.71 gallons to start with. Now, if you know that that is different or you want it to be a different volume, and this is for more advanced users, you can uncheck the calculate boil volume automatically and manually type something in there. I don't recommend this. You know, there's 
Beersmith has gone through a bunch of different iterations and is really good at calculating this volume, so let it do its job. The next one is boil time, is basically how long you want to boil for, 60, 90, 120 minutes in some cases, and you have that. And then the next one is boil off, where you have uh, in, in pre-populated as 0.5 gallons. This one is a good one to test, and here's how I recommend doing this. You take about five gallons of water, put it in your kettle, you boil it with a good rolling boil for about an hour. And then you take the water out of your kettle and you see how much you have left. Five gallons minus whatever you have left is your boil off. And that's important for uh, this calculation, otherwise your water volumes will be off. They'll either be too much or too little. And you wanted to make sure for the you know, gravity, as we know, is sugars. How many, how many sugars is in how much water will give you your gravity. So you want to make sure that your water volumes are correct. So if you can figure out your boil volumes, you, you know, your boil off in the, over the course of an hour more accurately based on your kettle and your heat source, you're going to nail those um, volumes a little bit more accurately. And, and from kettle to kettle, you will see variations. So again, this so let's let's put let's apply an example to this. Sure. So the boil off is going to be somewhat reflective of just how aggressive of a boil that you have. Is that correct? As well as surface area of your boil kettle. So if you have a if you have a tall skinny kettle, you're going typically going to have less boil off than if you have a squat wide kettle where it has more surface area to to boil off on. So if you're doing this in a, you're making a, say a 15 gallon batch, like some of our uh, cohorts in the JBG do, they're going to have much more boil off than we are using a smaller kettle because they use like a big 20 gallon pot, which is going to boil off quite a bit more than our seven gallon pot. Interesting. yeah, so you want to you, you want to figure out what your boil off volumes are going to be. Oh, that's a that's a great point to bring up. In my in my head, I'd always had the figure in my head that you're boiling off roughly one gallon per hour. That's always the number that I've just had in my brain. But I'm seeing because my you know the window that I just opened shows zero point seven five populating for boil off, and the number you just mentioned is a third different number, just zero point five. So. No, that's that's a great point to bring up that there's considerable variation with this. There is. And it really and, and this is one that I highly recommend figuring out what your equipment is is gonna produce because you wanna make sure that you are you know accurate on that one. It's it's thrown off some of my numbers in the past. Um great so then point. once you've once you have that figured out, then you have a check mark at uh, underneath it and says use boil off as an hourly rate. Again, I'm going to recommend let you know Beersmith knows what it's doing. Let that be. Uh, if you uncheck that, regardless of how much you change boil time in your recipe, it will remain uh, whatever is in the the boil off figure. So if you change it to 90 minutes where uh, you you have half a gallon of boil off per hour but you go 90 minutes you should have 0.75 boil off if you uncheck that it will remain half a gallon so just 
be con- conscious of that and uh and 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 I say leave that check let let Beersmith do its thing. Yeah. Okay. Um the next ones it gets into uh mash and lutter ton adjustments, adjustments that you need to do. Uh recoverable mash dead space. Um this is additional water added to the first mash step to to compensate for dead space losses. I tend to leave this at zero um, because there's another way to adjust this, adjust for this. And th- that way is the mash ton dead space losses. So the mash ton dead space losses, this is this, this space that after you've drained your mash ton and it stops flowing, how much liquid is left in your mash ton. For the one that I have with the false bottom that I have that's very low, covers the entire bottom of it, I tend to lose about 0.1 gallon in the process. So what was that number again? 0.1. 0.1, okay. Yeah, a tenth okay. of a gallon. So that is, you know, you, you can put that in there. And then the ne- the check mark below it is not checked, but I tend to check this. And the reason is... What it will do is this is where you can adjust for that dead space loss. So it will actually add about 0.1 gallon to the recipe and to compensate for the dead space loss so you don't lose that in your final batch. Yeah. So, and then comes the top-up water for kettle. So this is a weird animal in my mind because what this is is you're adding water to your kettle at the beginning of the brew. Now, for extract brewing, totally valid because you'll you'll top up your 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 boil at your, your your kettle prior to boil after you've done your extract and your and your ingredient steeping, your grain steeping. You're going to want to add water in to top it up before you start your boil. For mashing, I don't think this has a whole ton of uh, applicable, um, you know, reasons to use this. So I think that you know, and if I'm wrong, if anybody has a thought on this, please uh, let us know, and uh, I will be happy to update in a future episode. But the top up water for the kettle, way you would I think the way you would compensate for this is in your sparge water, and that's part of the reason that you sparge, anyways. Right, but you don't want to oversparge because then you can, yeah. you know, dilute your end runnings. But you know, again, this is one that I tend to leave at zero um, because I have not found yeah. a good use for it. Basically, so yeah. then you go to your post uh, boil losses and top up. The post boil losses has calculated your boil volume minus your boil off to your post boil volume. That's where you come up with that five point two one in this case. And then you have cooling shrinkage, which in most cases is about 4%. Now, if you're at high altitude or uh, really mostly high altitude, your your shrinkage can be different. And you can actually test for this. You can have water boiling. You can measure how much your water is at, uh, you know, when you're done with your boil. And then you can let it cool. And the water will actually shrink. And you'll lose a little bit of volume. Normally, again, about 4%. But if you're in various places where, you know, you have to 
cook things differently, you know, like in Denver and places like that, you may want to check this and just see if your shrinkage is more or less, you know, or you could just yell, I was in the pool and be done with it. So, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wonderful reference. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then the uh, lost to Trube and Chiller, this is, the uh, you know if you have a uh, this is the troop uh, that you will have at the bottom of your kettle so this is a place that you can add that in of how much you intend to lose at the bottom of your kettle to compensate for not wanting to pull all of that troop out of your kettle into your fermenter uh, it's really going to depend on you and how much troop you're you know you're you're you typically have and how whether or not you're able to compensate with a whirlpool or anything like that in order to be able to pull more of that liquid out so that um you know i would do some testing and just take a look at how much liquid do i have left at the end of a couple boils and make adjustments to this as you go uh top up water here is actually topping up your fermenter with water as you, uh, after you, you transfer from your boil kettle into the fermenter, you can actually top up with water to get up to, you know, the five gallons that you want in your fermenter. Yeah, again, I don't recommend this. I'd rather compensate no, for that just earlier on in beer. the recipe. Right, but, you know, yeah. if, if, if you say you're going to do half a gallon of top up, it's going to and it's going to still want to be able to nail those original gravity numbers so it's going to add more grain to your recipe That's a and good things point. like that okay. so it's it's going to compensate for that diluting good okay point. so then the next section here is hop utilization and whirlpool options this is again where that boil elevation comes into play it wants to know what is the um what is the elevation the altitude you are at when you're boiling Unless you're at really high altitudes, it's really not going to affect a whole ton. Um, and then, but if you're in Colorado, do this. Pay close attention. Pay yeah. close attention. <laughs> and, and again, if you're in high altitudes, it's not going to be anything foreign to you because you've had to make adjustments for regular cooking. Um, that you will, you know, you know so this will be this will be relatively normal for you. Uh, and then total whirlpool time is how long you're going to let. It whirlpool um, and and create that cone in the middle, and it'll Can you help. Take a second and explain what a what a whirlpool is and what the benefits are. Um, sure. So a whirlpool in a kettle after you're done boiling is designed to make transfer a little bit easier and to collect all that trube in the middle of the kettle as much as possible. There's a couple different ways you can do this. You could do it with a pump. You can do it with uh, a um, a whirlpool arm uh, attached to a drill. And you just basically spin the the liquid, but you know either way the effect is you spin the liquid for a couple minutes usually, and then it as it settles, it pulls all of that those particulates that have come out of suspension towards the center of the liquid and then you draw off the side and it typically allows you to pull more of the liquid off of the out of the kettle because you're not fighting against those stuff that stuff in the center it, it so also it's got to be strong enough just to create a vortex in the middle so that it correct. collects all, all of everything that's in the liquid mm-hmm. okay good deal 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And then um, hop utilization. This is really for very large batches. So unless you're doing more than 20 gallons at a time, leave this at 100%. If you're doing more than 100, you know, 20 gallons at a time, you're going to want to check and see how there's a way, although I can't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, we'll have to follow up on this, but there's a way to test hop utilization and how much of those, uh, those hops actually get utilized in the beer. But again, this is only applicable at larger batches for five to 10 gallons. Just leave this at a hundred percent. It's really not worth messing around with. Uh, and then that leaves us with notes and well, notes are notes. So note away. <laughs> One thing that uh, that points uh, that um, quickly grabs my attention looking at this is that last note that you just mentioned about large commercial batch hop utilization. Mm-hmm. It's not just the amateur home brewers like you and me that are using this tool. There's oh no, there's there's small to large size breweries that are using this also and using it for the exact same reasons because this is a smart, you know, helpful tool that does a lot of work for you. Right. Yeah. And there are other ones. There's more involved ones that um, you can find out there that some of the professionals use. But yeah, I mean, I know the monkeys still use Beersmith with their equipment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure that uh, Spencer Devin does as well. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's applicable to, uh, in fact, it has some equipment profiles in here for some very large um, um, equipment that you can use as well as very small, like Pico brew is equipment um, that is preloaded in here. If you use that. So if you use yeah. some, and I think the grain father is as well. So if you use some standard uh, purchasable commercial equipment, take a look and see, especially in the add on section under files. And if your equipment is already populated. And the other thing I'm going to say is that if you are, you know, you know, you're working with, fairly standard equipment take a look at the uh, stuff that's in pre-populated in the equipment profiles and see if you can't jump off of that like let's see um pot and cooler all grain five gallon you may be able to save that as something else and then and and make some adjustments off of there, and then you only have to make some adjustments according to what you uh, what your setup is. So it's it gives you a place to start. A little easier than than just kind of building building one from scratch. Mm-hmm. I would say if you're really ambitious, you can try it. But you know, if if you're anyone else like me, yeah, the, your your point is well taken. This is a great place to start. You know, look at the numbers that it gives uh, gives you, and make changes where uh, where you need. This is um, this really is an essential piece of using Beersmith and using it to its to its fullest degree. Um, and fortunately, unless you're quickly swapping out equipment and making constant upgrades, this is one of those things that you only have to do once every so often, you know, or as often as you're as you're changing equipment. So this is, this is all great information that, um, that George has, uh, has mentioned here on this segment. And it, it's, this is absolutely something to, to pay attention to. If, if you only have to do it once, if you're not changing out equipment, do it once and do it right. Understand yeah. these numbers and make sure what's being displayed is correct. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. And just, you know, make sure that you're, especially again, pay special attention to that boil off because it's the easiest thing to get wrong. You know, you get one pot and then you get another pot and they're relatively close in the dimensions, but their their diameter of the opening is a little bit different. That changes your surface area. Like there's a huge difference between a medium pizza and a large pizza. Just, you know, <laughs> in that in that two inches that the diameter is different, the surface area is huge. So it's it's definitely a um, it's definitely something to pay attention to and and a very easy way to dial in your numbers uh, much better than than you uh, than you may have been able to in the past. Awesome. Awesome. Those are great details. Yeah. That'll close us off, won't it? I think it will. That's the end. All right. All right. That will bring a close to our uh, Oktoberfest heavy episode. We went through went through a lot on today's episode. This is this is really good. I feel good about this. Right. And if you take away anything, remember the Galway hooker is a boat. It's named after a <laughs> boat. So <laughs> I hope you tweet that at some point. Today. <laughs> and speaking uh, speaking of that, uh, we're both uh, we're both I should say George is brewing today, and and I will be joining another uh, brewer for a project today. What are you making today, George? I'm making a porter based off of our um, modified of our um, you smoke two uh, recipe. I'm actually not doing the smoked part of it, so I'm just creating a. Uh, you know, a straight Baltic porter style on my uh, equipment. Oh, Baltic. Are you lagering it? I am not. I'm not going that far. Uh, I've got uh, okay. English uh, ale yeast that I'm going to use along with it. So I know that's Baltic porters are typically lagered. That's true. But uh, I'm kind of dialing into that. So I'm hoping for an estimated ABV of about seven and a half. Uh, with a little All bit, right. yeah, a little bit more bitter of around thirty IBUs. So, do you know All what you're right. making? Yeah, I am uh, joining a brew day for a Czech Pills, and oh. um, floating back to a previous project of ours, um, George and I went all out and did a double decoction mash, and the topic came up of you know who out there has done a decoction. And, you know, what are the benefits that you see or is it is it worth doing? So I quickly raised my hand and said, yes, I've made a check pills and did a double decoction. Um, you can expect to um, see your efficiency numbers um, a little bit better. And uh, but just plan for a really long brew day. That's you're going to be a little exhausted by after it, after it's all done. Giant pain in the ass is what he's trying to say. But yeah, yes, yeah. It, it does so the, reflect in the numbers. <laughs> Yeah, it does. But uh, the decision was made not to do a decoction today. So instead, we're going to do a, a step mash. I think we're doing three steps uh, for okay. this. Acid rest, protein rest, and then sacrification. So it's going to be a longer brew day, but a little bit less so than than doing a, uh, doing full decoctions. So yeah, I, I'm only doing the double. I'm just doing start at, stopping at protein and then going to... Uh, to the sack rest. So no, uh, no triple for me. I was going to say, how many dogs does he have? Because, you know, he, you know what? That's a great question. I, I don't know this. I'll find out later today though. All right. Cause you know, you got to If you're going to do a double detoxion, you got to have two dogs. You're, so, you're right. If you have three dogs, Hey, you're doing, you're doing a triple. Well, you don't have to, but you can, that, that, that allows you to do it. So, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Good stuff. All right. All right. Great, great episode. Happy October, everybody. Um, we will raise a glass. Um, I it's early hours, so I've uh, I'm my glass is being replaced <laughs> by a coffee mug, and I don't have a second glass around here to make any kind of clanging noise. So this is just going to be an air raise today. So, alrighty. Yep. It takes a lot of good beer to make great beer. Cheers. Cheers.